Hey, good morning, New Spring, and welcome to your fourth weekend service here. Thank you for all of you who struggle to get a seat or a parking place or get in and out of the parking lot. Thank you so much. We, we recognize that you, you make some sacrifices in order to be here. Could I just also say that we do have some room at the 5 o'clock service on Saturday night, and there's more room at 6.30, so if it ever gets to be too congested and you'd like to just maybe have a little easier experience. You could try those. All four of our services are the same theoretically, and uh, all kids' world is the same. So you, you might just want to think about that if it ever gets to be too challenging to get in here on, uh, at the, for the 1115 service. I cannot believe that we've come to the end of our series, uh, Strange Days Indeed, because it felt like yesterday I was just thinking about bringing this series to you. Uh, but we've talked about the fact that we probably are uh, in the days very close to Jesus' return. And we know from Scripture that we are living in the last days. That's what we've talked about the last three weeks. Today, I want to take this talk to a completely different place. I've never heard a minister give a talk on today's topic. I've never done it. And when this weekend is over, I may never do it again. Uh, I may find out why nobody ever does this. But I want to do something that is very important to me personally. I want to talk to you about your first day in heaven. And... Uh, heaven is an interesting topic. You know, years ago, I remember looking for a book in the Christian bookstore in heaven, and I was amazed to find how, little, how few books are written on the subject of heaven. So I started exploring research, and I found out that heaven is one of the least frequently talked about topics in, in sermons or messages. In fact, I found that ministers talk about hell five times as many times as they talk about heaven. And I, I thought about that. Well, why is it that we do that? I remember I did a, a series on heaven in 1993. That was the first time I ever did a series on heaven. And, and I remember real well what caused me to do it. We had had one of our leaders, a fine man here at our church, who was shot and killed driving down Central. A 15-year-old gang member was shooting at someone across the street just as this wonderful man and his wife drove down the road, a, a trip that any of us could have been on. And a bullet tore through their van and, and, and killed him. And I spent, really, pretty much the first 72 hours with that family and with our church. And I was in the limousine on the way to the cemetery. I can remember like yesterday. And I thought to myself, if heaven is everything that I've said it was, why is it that we just pull it off the shelf at a moment like that? Because if, if heaven is everything God says, it ought to be the backdrop against all of our judgment calls and all of our decisions. But we don't talk about it very much. And I think I know why. We don't talk about it because, for one thing, we know what lies in between here and heaven. We have to die. And so we don't like talking about death. And, and Lord knows I don't like thinking about death. So I think that's one reason why we put it off. And, and we don't, especially if we're young, it's like, well, that's way out there in the future. So I'm not going to think about heaven. And there's a second reason why we don't talk about heaven. And, and, and here I'm going to get into a little bit of a rant. But you need to understand I'm not blaming people for this. I blame ministers for this. I hear some of the sappiest stuff in the broader culture about heaven. 
He not listen to technologically savvy people, bright people, Christ followers, who all of a sudden when we start talking about heaven, we get so sappy. And, and I hear things, you know, because, I, I, Lord, I don't think that there's, I don't, I don't think that anyone that I know has been to as many funerals as I have unless they're in the funeral business. I grew up in a pastor's home. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I've conducted hundreds of funerals. And it, one of the things that just always frustrates me is it seems like that's a time where ministers want to wax poetic. I think if there's ever a place for straight talk, it's at a funeral. Because the quintessential question of life is what happens five seconds after you die? See, you know, who you marry if you get married is a big decision. What you do for your career, that's a big decision. But all those decisions, as big as they are, and any other decision that we can think of that's temporary for this life, pales in comparison as to your preparation for where you're going to be five seconds after you die. So I, I never can understand why ministers choose to be so poetic at that point. And I think that's one reason why people come up with strange ideas. I mean, I hear things like, we all turn into angels. If I hear that one more time, I'm just going to freak out. No, we don't turn into angels. Grandma's an angel. No, 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 no. She's, you know, she's her. And it's like, well, I'm going to go to heaven and get my wings. I can't see anywhere in the Bible where people get wings when they go to heaven. And, and, and I always kid you guys about being ADHD, but I really am. And, and the idea that I'm going to like turn into an angel and float around on a cloud and twang on, twang on a harp, I got to tell you, that would bore me out of my wits. So I, I sort of understand why we don't talk about heaven very much, because on one hand, we don't want to think about dying, being in between here and there. And then secondly, we've heard all these crazy ideas that make it sound like it's not anything worth talking about. So today, I want to do something that I don't think you could really call this a sermon. And then secondly, the second, I'm going to have to ask you that you work with me in this, because we're going to look at a great deal of scripture, and I'm going to move even fast for me. In just a second here, I'm going to get on my horse and ride. And I want to take you to what a lot of the Bible has to say about your first day in heaven. And the moment I say that, I start smiling because I think it's ridiculous for me to stand here and say in 35 minutes, I'm going to tell you about heaven. I mean, first off, if I said I'm going to tell you about the world in 35 minutes, that would be laughable. But to talk about heaven with all of its superior grandeur and, and everything, obviously I can't even begin to touch the surface. But I want to walk you through the Bible, and I want to show you some things that I think will really ramp you up as you think about your first day in heaven. Actually, the title is kind of tongue-in-cheek, because you're not going to have one first day in heaven. You're going to have at least three first days in heaven, maybe four. So what I want to do is I want to talk about those three and potentially four first days in heaven. See, heaven is a generic term that means afterlife with God. And, and, and there's so much specificity after that that never, we never really get into in church that today, and like I said, I'm, this may turn out to be a bad idea, but I'm going to take a crack at it. I want to talk to you about your four first days, or at least three first days in heaven. And here's what we're going to discover. Every time we look at a level or a phase of heaven, what is gained in that first phase carries over to the second phase. And what's gained in the first two phases carries over to the third phase and then the fourth phase. So you can imagine a lot of the cool things about heaven we're going to see in this first phase. It's like I bought a car last year. And I remember listening to the dealer tell me, you can get the basic package, then you can move up to the luxury package. The luxury package has everything that's in the basic package. But then if you want, you can go up to the technology package. And the technology package, ha package has everything in the basic package and the luxury package. That's what we're going to see when we talk about heaven. Your four first days in heaven, or maybe your three first days in heaven. Let's take the first one. You may experience this. You may not experience this. If you were in our first talk 
in our series, you know that God has got an evacuation program working. And it is possible, we're living in very strange days, it is possible that you will never experience this first first day in heaven, you might just bypass it. You may be in the HOV lane, because if you're still living when Jesus comes back, you won't experience this one. Here is the first phase of the first level of heaven, and that is your first day in heaven if you were to die. Now, we don't want to think about that, and I hope that you live till Jesus comes back, but in a crowd this size, chances are somebody is going to pass before Jesus returns. So what would you experience if you were to die right now and go to heaven. I just want to take you to several scriptures in the Bible because as we cherry pick these, we're going to learn some things. Now, if you study the Bible, chances are you know where this particular statement comes from. Jesus is on the cross and he is dying between two thieves. At first, both thieves ripped Jesus. But after a while, in a moment of conscience and a moment, I think, of God dealing with this thief, he realizes that Jesus is really what he has heard about when he was a little boy and he went to worship. He is the coming Messiah. I mean, he, it, it gets clear to him. And he stops ripping Jesus and he begins to say to the other thief, why are we ripping this guy? We're getting what we deserve. Which, by the way, I think that is the first step to truly coming to Christ. I think it's owning up to our own dysfunction and sin. He said, we are getting what we deserve. And this man has done absolutely nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says something. He doesn't know much about life to come. He's a thief. He's been living his life as a bad dude. He says he was. Probably when he was very small, he heard some teaching. And he was real fuzzy about the afterlife. And he doesn't ask Jesus to forgive him because I think he thinks that's impossible. He doesn't ask Jesus to save him because he thinks that's for good people. All he can think of to say is, Lord, just remember me. You know, somewhere way out there in the future, when you have your kingdom, would you just remember me? I, I, I don't think he was asking for much. Would you just maybe have a good thought about me? And Jesus gave us one of the coolest verses in the Bible. And in this verse, it is pregnant with wonderful truth about what happens the moment you die. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, think about that, you will be with me, think about that, in paradise, think about that. Three thoughts about what would happen if you were to die today. First off, well, it's immediate. There are some people who have the idea that when you die, you just sleep in the ground. Not according to Jesus. Jesus told this thief, it'll happen today. It's like, you know, after we get off these crosses, I'll meet you later today. You and I need to learn something that's very very much missed in our Western culture. We are more than our bodies. See, we think we are our bodies. And when someone dies, we think that's the end of that person. But we're not our bodies. Death in the Greek language is the word thanatos, which means separation. At the point of death, you don't stop living. Death is not the cosmic stop sign. It is not the cessation of life. The real you that is cognitive, that is alert, that's personal, that has identity, that part of you goes right on living. And what scholars say is the most profound verse in the Bible, John 11, verse 26, Jesus said this, whoever lives and believes in me will never, never, never die. Think about who you are right now. That part of you will never stop living. When the time comes for your death, somebody will have to tell you that you died. Guys, I've done so many funerals, hundreds of funerals through the years, and one of my responsibilities as pastor is to stand, if it's a casket, open casket at the end, to stand at the head of the casket, and I'm there to attend the family or mourners as they come by if their grief overwhelms them, to encourage them. 
I cannot tell you how many times I've stood by the casket and been there and thought to myself, this person is having the time of her life while we're, it, we're here, you know? This guy is having the time of his life. That's what happens. It is immediate today. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. Today, Jesus said, you will be with me. That means not only is it instant and immediate, it is conscious awareness. For Jesus to make that comment that he would be with him, I'll be hanging with you later today. In fact, can you imagine when Jesus goes into paradise, he's got his arm around a thief. Hey, meet my friend. How cool is that? Conscious awareness. And then paradise is a Persian word, which means an enclosed garden or a pleasure ground. I don't know what that means. It just sounds good. Now let's go to another place here. This is in Luke chapter 16. And again, I'm going to tell you more than you want to know, because again, I'm, I'm going really fast, and I'm sorry for that. I just really need this. In Luke 16, Jesus is, actually, Jesus is telling a story about two guys. One guy was a rich guy who had everything this world had to offer, but he had no time for God. He had no time for people. He had no time for a relationship with God because he was all about the almighty dollar. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't give us his name because evidently to God, it doesn't matter a whole lot. At his gate is a street person. His name, by the way, God does give to us. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus means my God is king. Lazarus evidently had committed his life to the Lord, but he was really going through a tough stretch of life. He lost his health, lost his job, and some people that were as poor as Lazarus thought, maybe we'll just put him outside the gate of this rich dude, and you know, maybe this rich guy will walk by and at least give him a meal or take care of him or something. Every day the rich guy stepped over Lazarus because he had things to do, people to see him, money to make. Well, they both die. And the rich guy winds up in hell, and Lazarus winds up in heaven. So the reason I tell you that, this is God talking to the rich guy. By the way, I just still think it's interesting that the rich guy's name is not there and the poor guy's name is there. Heaven just looks at things so differently than we do. Now, God says, son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is, here's the word, comforted. I want you to focus on that. What would it be like if you were to die and go to heaven? I think the word comforted says so much. Why is that? Well, because when you think about the people in your life who have died, oftentimes we go out of this life in a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of agony, a sense of loss. And I can't prove this. I mean, I think I can, really. But I, I can't prove it specifically. But I am convinced that if you were to die today or if a loved one that you had who believes in Christ died, the first touch they would feel would be Jesus welcoming them home. I don't know how many of you have been to Judgment House. But isn't it true probably that the, most, that the best moment of Judgment House is that moment in the heaven scene, which we know doesn't look like heaven. We're just doing our best. But at that moment where the, the person who plays the role of Jesus embraces you, isn't that great? Isn't it cool to know that when you get to heaven, that is most likely the case, that Jesus will be the first one there. Lazarus went through tough times, but Jesus said, now he is comforted. I think about comfort in a different context. Are you ever in an environment where you're uncomfortable? I mean, I hope you're not uncomfortable today. At New Spring, our goal is to make you feel as loved as you really are. And I hope you're never uncomfortable here, even if you don't even believe all this stuff. I hope you feel comfortable here. Many of us will go home today. I know where I'll go. I'll go to my basement, in my recliner, in front of my television screen, and watch NFL football. <laughs> I'll sit down after four services and feel comfort. I'm home. 
Now, I think that's what we'll feel when we get to heaven. See, I mean, we, we opened with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, if I can't find anything that satisfies me in this world, perhaps I was made for another place. And I think that's true. Heaven is a place where you will feel comfort. I started preaching or communicating when I was 16 years old. And God began to open doors of opportunity very quickly for me. And, and primarily, I would speak, this was in 72 and 73, I would speak to high school groups. I'd only committed my life to preach for just a, a, a few weeks when all of a sudden invitations began to like pour in. Would you talk to our high school group? So I would go speak to high school groups even though I was just a junior myself. And whenever I would get through speaking, there would always be a long queue of high school kids waiting to talk to me and ask me questions, which is kind of funny as I think about it because I didn't know anything. <laughs> but I would remember there would be especially girls, high school girls would be there. And they'd say, Mark, do you think Jesus is going to come before I can get married? You know, you, you know, will I be able to get married before Jesus comes? And God say, you think I'll be able to get my driver's license before Jesus comes? Or, you know, will I be able to get out of college before, I, you know, before Jesus comes? And, and, and I think these high schoolers were asking the same question a whole lot of us really ask. Is it, isn't it true that heaven is inferior to this life? I mean, after all, we've been told we float around on clouds. And, after, and this, my life is really cool. If you're American, you live in a pretty cool place. I want to take you now to a statement from Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Again, I know this is like drinking out of a fire hose. But Paul had had a unique experience. By this time, he's an elderly man. I'm convinced that Paul had what we call an NDE, a near-death experience. Because he said there was a moment when he was allowed to look into heaven. He said, I'm not allowed to tell what I saw. Which, by the way, all these books that tell what they saw, he's thinking about when Paul got up there, he couldn't tell what he saw. But in any event, save that for another day. Paul now is elderly, and he's serving so many churches, and he's thinking to himself, I would really like to go on to be with God, but I need to help these churches. That's what this statement, that's the context of this statement in Philippians 1, verse 23. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but do we have anybody here who loves grammar? Probably three of us in the crowd this size. Okay, if you don't like grammar, just zone out for a few seconds and then come right back. What Paul uses here is what we call in Greek a triple comparative. And in English, that wouldn't be good grammar because a comparative is a word like better. And so Paul is thinking about, well, you know, if I went to heaven, it'd be better than this life. No, that doesn't really say it. It would be far better. Now, that doesn't really say it. It would be very far better. Why is that important to you and me? Because we need to understand that the best experience we've ever had in this life is inferior to heaven. See, I've lost some of you already when you came in. And you thought, Mark's going to talk about heaven. I'll just leave that to God. Because after all, I've got so much going on. What a mistake that is. Because the very best experience you've ever had in this life is so inferior to anything left to come. Okay. One more question before we leave this first phase of heaven. Remember, you will carry these all the way through the next three phases, and maybe you won't even have to experience this. But another question I get asked a lot is, what if I were to die, would I know the people in heaven? One of the issues that we have is Eastern mysticism has sort of gotten into the groundwater of our thinking. So a lot of people, they wonder if I come back, will I come back as a frog or a lizard or a turnip or whatever? Um, but, you know, after all, we don't know. I mean, will we know our loved ones in heaven? My favorite guitarist of all time is Eric Clapton. 
And many of you will know that Eric Clapton had a tragedy in his life. His little boy, Connor, fell out of a a multi-story apartment building and fell to his death. And Clapton, like I guess he did with everything else in life, he talked it out through his music, and he left us a beautiful, poignant song about grieving, and the song is called Tears in Heaven. And I hear it all the time whenever I'm in a store or whatever, or sometimes I just listen to it. And, and to me, it always breaks my heart when I hear, this story because, hear the song because Eric Clapton is saying, would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Well, I want to take you to a verse of, of Scripture that answers that question. And this is in the life of Jesus. It's what we call the transfiguration. And the Bible says this, there were two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, a couple things we should notice. Number one, Elijah and Moses are not contemporary with each other. They lived in different time periods. Moses was in what we call the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Elijah was a prophet who lived in a different age. But Moses is still Moses, and Elijah is Elijah. Moses is not now George, and Elijah is not, you know, Jeff. These guys are Moses is Moses, and Elijah is Elijah. They know each other. The second thing I want you to notice is they know Jesus. Why do they know Jesus? Because they were in heaven before Jesus came to earth. And they have hung with him, and they know who he is. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. And what are they talking about? They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from the world. Basically, what Moses and Elijah were asking him is, what time is your flight when you get to leave? See, Moses and Elijah had experienced the world, and they had experienced heaven. And so when they come down, they start rapping with Jesus. The first question they want to know is, hey, when do you get to leave? When do you get to come home? But it's great for me to see that they were still who they were and Jesus knew them. Let me keep rolling here. The one thing about this first phase of heaven is that from what I can tell, the people who go to heaven right now do not have what we call their glorified bodies. I don't know what, and if you were to pin me against the wall and say, Mark, do they have temporary bodies? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know they're visible because we just read a moment ago that Moses and Elijah were glorious to see. So in other words, it was really cool to watch them, but they still don't have their glorified bodies. That takes me to your second first day in heaven, and for hopefully if you live until Jesus comes, this will be your first first day in heaven because you will skip that first one altogether. But the first day after Jesus returns has this huge distinction. Here's an upgrade in packages. Because those who have died and their bodies are buried in the ground, but their souls and spirits have been with God, and those of us who might be alive during that time, instantly we receive new equipment, new bodies. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, it says our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. In other words, you can't take this body to heaven. It would just blow it up. Your body is not made for heaven. And I know for some of you who are 25 right now, you think, yeah, Mark, I could take my body to heaven. And I don't know what adjective you would use, you know, hot, buff, ripped. And then if you're 50, it may be nipped, tucked, and <laughs> suctioned. Say, <laughs> so Mark, I, I got to take this body to heaven. I'm, it's, I'm still paying for what's been done. <laughs> Hey, for those of you who are young and you think you could take your body, take it for the rest of us who can just tell you it's a losing proposition. And I, I'm 55 years old. I don't want to take this body to heaven. It's got issues. 
So that's what the Bible is saying. The bodies that we have right now, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read on, 51, verse 51. Well, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Now, here's the thing. We're not going to live in these bodies, but... Hang with me for a moment. They are valuable to us, right? I mean, you know, our organs, our hands, our health, that is valuable to us. We need these bodies. They serve us. But how cool will it be when we get heavenly equipment? I mean, things that don't work like they should in this body, diseases that have claimed aspects of these bodies, just imperfections that we've had from the first day of our life. We won't have those anymore. Now, I know I'm talking to some of you who could be a little contrarian, and you could say, well, I don't know that I really understand all that. One of the issues I have with Americans sometimes is if we don't understand God, we feel like it's a deal breaker. What a backward way of looking at things. But in any event, I'm going to read you what Paul said. I didn't say this. He said it, okay? Someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. I promise you, I didn't say that. He said that. When you plant a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. There are bodies in the heavens and bodies on earth. Now, let's skip down. Verse 42, in the same way, with the re- it's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried. Now, Paul at this point is going to juxtapose these physical bodies against the bodies that we're going to have in the future. And what I want to do here is I want to give you the actual English definitions of the Greek words he's using. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, which means without worth. Now, your body's worth a lot to you right now, but six, seven, eight, 10, 12 days after you die, you wouldn't want to see my body, okay? Because they just, they don't have worth. And that's why we bury them. That's why we cremate Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. The English means awesome as in wow. Um, They are buried in weakness. That means feebleness, but they will be raised in strength, dynamic force. The Greek word dunamis. We get a word dynamite from that. So I'm going to be dynamite when I get to heaven. (laughs) They are buried as natural, which means carnal, inclined toward doing wrong things, faulty, not working like they should. (laughs) They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual or supernatural bodies. We, we love going to the movies and watching superheroes with supernatural powers. That's the kind of body you're going to have when you're raised. So in this second phase, the great thing about it is that we're going to have new equipment. We're going to have a new, you'll have everything that we have if a person were to die and go to paradise. But after Jesus comes back, then everybody there in heaven is going to have a new body. And I love 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And I'm getting old enough now to know what it means to bear the image of the earthy. I mean, the wrinkles, the stuff that y'all cover up with makeup, you know, that's just the image of the earthy. That's the earthly body. But in heaven, we'll bear the image, the stamp of heavenly bodies. Your first day in heaven, number three, the third phase of heaven. And let me give you just a little bit of background because here we need to go back to the first talk that I gave you in the series. Right now, we're living in what we call the church age. The door is open. It's time for the good news for God's rescue plan to get out. 
That age will end with Jesus' return. We just talked about that a second ago. Some people call that the rapture. It's just an evacuation. There will be seven years on the earth, which we call the tribulation period. You can read about it in Revelation. We're in heaven, but stuff on earth is really rough. What happens at the end of the tribulation? See, the beginning of the tribulation is marked by Jesus' return for us. The end of the tribulation is marked, biblically speaking, by a battle. Some of you may have heard of the battle. It's called Armageddon. But basically, here's the, here's the thumbnail sketch on Armageddon. The Bible teaches that all the nations of the world at the end of the tribulation will amass against Israel. And then that'll be too much for Jesus. And he comes back and fights a quick battle. It's over. And we come with him that time. Well, what happens next? What happens next is something that is very important to God. I struggle to understand it. But whatever I think about it, it's very important to God. God wanted to set up a thousand-year period of time in which Jesus rules and reigns. And God gives us all a chance to see what the world was meant to be like before sin entered the picture. And the tribulation, excuse me, the millennial kingdom of Christ, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ, will actually have two kinds of people in it. It's going to have us, those of us who are in our glorified bodies, and there will also be people who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ during the tribulation who will live into the millennial kingdom. Just keep that for, we'll, we'll talk about that on another time. But the great thing I love about this is we're going to go in there with everything that the first face of heaven has, our new bodies, and then we'll get to live under Jesus as king for a thousand years. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, Mark, I can't figure out your politics. Well, neither can I. But I don't just wonder, is there anybody besides me who's already tired of this election year? I mean, I got to tell you, I'm disappointed in the Democrats. I'm disappointed in the Republicans. I'm disappointed in the Independents. I'm disappointed in Congress. I'm disappointed with us as the electorate. I'm 55 years old. I've seen administrations come and go, and I'm just disappointed with the whole thing. So if you want to know what kind of platform I would endorse, let me read to you what I would endorse. I mean, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible talks about Jesus coming into our world. Unto us a child is born, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government will never end. No term limits on Jesus. Now listen to his agenda. In Micah, the Lord will mediate between peoples and settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. That's my agenda. I'm for that. I'll wear, the sign, I mean, I'll wear a button. I'll put a bumper sticker on my car. That is what I'm for. That is my party. And then I'm going to skip long human life because there will be people who live in the tribulation. We'll talk about that another day. But I love this, perfect ecological harmony. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, in that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the, with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a little child will lead them all. The lion will eat hay like a cow. There will be any more National Geographic shows with animals eating animals. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Nothing will hurt or destroy, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Really cool. And to me, I'm just keeping it real here. I'm not really sure why we don't go instantly to what we're going to see in a moment, the eternal state. I don't know why that is. But it is very big to God that we get a chance to see what the world was meant to be like.
before sin got into the picture. Finally, number four, everything we've talked about up till now, plus God says, now I really want to show you heaven. My time is gone this morning, so I, I want to just read to you. I mean, first of all, heaven is going to be a place of dazzling awesomeness. Let me just, again, just read with me, please, because I don't have a lot of time to comment. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Hope there's still beaches. Number two, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look at this metaphor. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So after we've experienced all this glory and this magnificent kingdom, God says, let me show you heaven, really. And now the capital city of heaven begins to descend. And what a city it is. John says God even gave him a, gave him a panoramic view. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper. It's a diamond, clear as crystal. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. A lot of us in the Western world, we think, what's all this deal about streets of gold? I think it's God's way of saying the stuff that people gave up Jesus for on the earth, we paved the streets with it here. Revelation 22. The angel showed me, this is the last chapter of the Bible. The angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. So dazzling beauty beyond what we can imagine. Let me tackle something real quick. Every once in a while say, well, people say, well, heaven be big enough? Uh, for all of you who are engineers and interested in that, let me just read this to you, okay? The city lies in a square, its length being the same as its width, and he measured the city with his reed, 12,000 stadia, or about 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are the same. He measured its wall also, 144 cubits, about 75 yards, and a lot of the measures of heaven are in cubits, so the Amplified says, by man's measure, a cubit would be from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, which next time somebody flips you off, say, thank you for telling me or reminding me how big heaven is. <laughs> we'll mess them up. But really, the ground floor of heaven is nearly 2 million square miles, which would be 40 times as, think about this, this is just the ground floor of heaven, 40 times as big as England, 10 times as big as Germany or France. That's the ground floor. And then there's space. It's, it's just as high as it is wide and long. Space for 600,000 stories. And that's just the capital city of heaven. Guys, I know that's like drinking from a fire hose. And honestly, I can't wait to see it. This is what I get excited about. Let me read this and I'll be through. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, how many of us are paying attention to the story at Penn State? What an awful thing. Wouldn't it be something to be in a world where there's not any more abuse or pain or crying or death? See, I love all the stuff about the gold and the dazzling city and everything. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, cool, and that's great. I'm just I'm going to have my mouth open. I can't wait to live in a place like this. 
John writes, and this is in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there is no night there. In verse 27, it says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Uh-oh. All of a sudden, I have a problem. I've done things that are shameful. Just keeping it real here, I've done things that are deceitful. Does that mean I can't go to heaven? Because we just read this fantastic place. No one will be able to enter it who does what is shameful or deceitful, but who will go into heaven? Look at this. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Aren't you glad for that connection? Because it doesn't say only good people go to heaven. It says only people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a term there for Jesus, the Lamb. Because see, back in the Old Testament, lambs were sacrificed for what? For deceitfulness, for sin, for shameful things. How do you go to heaven? Well, you admit to God that you're a deceitful person and do shameful things from time to time. And you know it's wrong and you're sorry and you own up to it and realize that that's why Jesus came into our world on a rescue mission, to die for you. And you put your confidence in him. I talked about Clapton a little while ago and I've always thought listening to Tears in Heaven, I would love to have 10 minutes with Derek Clapton because he has this poignant line in Tears in Heaven. He says, to his son, I know I don't belong here in heaven. How do you feel? Do you belong in heaven? If you feel that you belong in heaven because of your goodness, I can tell you that's not good enough. But if you've put your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, you belong in heaven. But let me just deal with this question, I'm finished. The question is, does God want you in heaven? What's the last chapter, what's, what's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. What's the last chapter? Double deuce, chapter 22. I want you to listen to what God says at the very end of the Bible. Jesus said, I have sent my angel to give you this message. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. The last message of God to you in the Bible is come. And so I just want to say to you today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God wants you in heaven. If you miss heaven, it'd be the saddest thing in the world because God did the unthinkable to get you into heaven. He put his son on a cross. And if you would put your confidence in him, he would wash your deceitfulness and your shameful things away. And he would make you right with him. I'm going to do something as we close out this service. I want to just pray a prayer. And if you've never received Jesus... You can pray this prayer with me. And the reason why this is important is the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you would like to call, I know God will be on the other side of your prayer. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I've done wrong, and I can't save myself. And on my own, I don't belong in heaven. But I believe you died to get me in. And I believe you arose from the grave. And I commit my life to you. I realize I'm going to heaven because of what you did, not what I've done. 
And I'll joyfully put my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.